Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is Dave Evans. Dave is a lecturer at Stanford University. Along with his collaborator, Bill Burnett, Dave focuses on the topic of designing your life, a course they teach, which they've turned into a book, which has in turn sold roughly 600,000 copies and has been translated into more than 20 languages. Prior to Stanford, Dave worked at Apple, where he helped design and market the first mouse, and was part of the founding team at Electronic Arts. In this interview, we discuss Dave's latest book, also co-authored with Bill Burnett, Designing Your Work Life, which highlights how employees and managers can improve their work experience. Dave provides strategies that people can use with their current jobs to make their career more fulfilling. He also discusses the three kinds of overwhelm employees can feel, how they can mitigate these before overwhelm turns into burnout, and how managers can help employees develop their own pathways in the company. Finally, Dave talks about how remote work has made face-to-face -face interaction easier, yet made onboarding new employees and informal interactions between employees more difficult to facilitate. Hello, Dave. Good morning to you. Good morning to you. Uh, I assume you're in California at the moment. And I thus am indeed. I'm sitting on the very, very edge of the left coast here. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Well, great to see you. We really appreciate you taking a little time with us today. Um, Dave Evans uh, uh, spent time in, in academe as well as in industry. Uh, he is now a Stanford professor um, with his collaborator, Bill Burnett, uh, uh, on designing your life. The first time I had the great pleasure of speaking with Dave and with Bill uh, was after that book's release and uh, really a fantastic one. One that I, I, I gift a lot to people who are in transition, uh, whether they've just left a job or are contemplating leaving a job. And it's interesting. Uh, I want to begin there now with your new book, um, Designing Your Work Life, a terrific read. And so Designing Your Life was, you know, helping people think about, you know, how, how do you make for a more fulfilling life? Uh, right. And one's life, a lot of it is dominated by work. We spend a lot of time at work. And you point out in the book, 69% of Americans are disengaged from their jobs. And worldwide, it's more like 85%. Yeah. So there's a lot of problems here. Um, so talk, talk a bit about uh, the, the background of, of this, uh, you know, why you pivoted from designing your life to designing your work life, please, Dave. Well, you know, the second, and thanks, Peter, the, 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 the book really was a spec book. I mean, so the publisher calls, and first of all, I was, you have to understand, I'm, I may be sort of the noisy, bouncy extrovert in the Bill and Dave show. I'm sort of the Tigger, you know, you're not Eeyore, but he's not Tigger. Um, and, uh, but I'm also the skeptic, you know, I'm really a skeptic. And uh, I successfully killed the book project, the first book project for two years, because I was convinced nobody wanted to buy that dumb book, you know. There are 500,000 English-speaking books, you know, released a year. As far as I can tell, 300,000 will tell you what to do in your life. Um, so I said, Bill, even if we write a good book, nobody's going to know. Um, and to our great surprise, as, as Peter pointed out, it, it, it's just blown the doors off and continues to do so. Um, and then, um, so the publisher calls back and says, look, it's not a book, it's a movement. And, you know, okay, uh, oh, sure, okay, great. I.e., can you spell sequel? Um, so they said we really want to do some more books, and uh, so they asked us to send us to send them a list of possible second books, um, and we were surprised actually when they picked the workbook. And the, and the rationale they had, uh, which seems to be turning out quite true, is look, a lot of people see that first book as like completely reinventing themselves, uh, you know, maybe making a big change in life, and a whole lot of people either can't afford to, or frankly just don't want to make a big change. They don't particularly want to quit and restart their career in some other field, but they sure wouldn't mind designing life a little bit better. 
Um, and frankly, if you could pick a spot to make it a little better, how about doing it at the office where we spend most of our waking energies? Uh, that research has been clear for a long The largest single expenditure of human energy is in the workplace. Um, and for people who care about living a meaningful life to them, um, if they report having found a way to live a life that's meaningful, the overwhelming majority of people report that that meaning is most easily found, again, in the workplace. So we're, we're really workers. Um, so let's go focus on that. We did a little bit of research and found out those disengagement numbers. And having been a management consultant for 25 years in between, you know, that was not a surprise to me. So we started down that path. And in no time at all, um, we found ourselves with a book on our hands and we wrote it and off we go. Um, in fact, I'm, just to, to give you a sneak, very early preview, I'm literally today waiting for the markup back from the editor on the second edition of the second book because they, the president of Penguin Random House, Madeline McNoddle, uh, called our editor at Knopf and said, look, the game is really changing as we come toward, we begin to see the light at the end of the tunnel of the pandemic and the work world has been drastically affected by this. Mm -hmm. um, so we need the second edition that it, so we just wrote four new chapters um, that will uh, be talking about lessons from the pandemic, uh, what we're calling disruption design. Um, so the conversation has been pretty rich, um, but bottom line is, you know, we spend a lot of time at work, an awful lot of people are disengaged, and there's some things we ought to be able to do about that. So in the book, we speak both to, um, you know, the worker, him or herself, uh, and to the leader and the manager that's creating the work environment. So the second book was much trickier to write because the constituencies were clear. The first book is written to a very simple group. It's called Human Beings at Any Age in Any Situation. Now well, I'm about to become a gig worker. Oh, I'm, an, I'm a corporate animal. I'm in a small business. I'm a, I'm a team leader or a manager or an executive. Each of those people have a little different point of view. So they're different tools for different folks in different situations in the workbook. Um, but it was, it, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun to write. It's been a lot of fun to talk with people about trying to make work work. Well, you know, when, some, when somebody thinks about a book that's uh, designing your work life, one might think that it's immediately talking about, you know, get your next best job. And you do talk about quitting. I'd like to get to that in a moment. But sure. most of the book actually deals with uh, the, and, and, and points to the reality that most people can't readily leave their jobs. Uh, and, and so you talk a lot about getting unstuck uh, yeah. from jobs. Don't resign, redesign. Right. Uh, and, and I wonder if you could talk a bit about a bit about that, uh, that that there's actually there, there are some strategies people can pursue within their current context and not necessarily with uh, even the blessing of their needing the, the blessing of their boss in order to make their current jobs better. Um, we'd love to have you take it from there. Sure. The, and our, I mean, a lot of people who are frustrated, you know, all the way up to the CEO, by the way, um, yeah. kind of feel like, gosh, you know, this is not really working. I, I, need, a, I need a better job. I need a different job. Um, and our recommendation is the easiest person to get a better job from is you. And we give you four redesign strategies at increasing levels of, of challenge. And the first one is re-enlist. Second one is remodel. Third one's relocate. And the fourth one is reinvent. And briefly in each of those. So re-enlist is literally, you're doing exactly the same thing. You're just telling yourself a new story. Um, and that may sound like just trying to make lemonade out of lemons. We actually, that particular idea of, you know, well, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Um, what that really says is you take a bad thing that's intrinsically bad. And you somehow make it a good thing. We think in most cases in the work world, that doesn't work at all. What you got to do is you got to go relocate. You got to reframe and, and find a really good thing and emphasize more of that or bring a good thing in or minimize a bad thing. But we're not trying to tell people, hey, just, just you know, put a smile on your face. It'll be fine. What we're saying is there really is a, a complete reframe and re-enlistment process um, 
where your relationship with that job and with that company is completely different than it was before. Um, and that, and there's a lot of that going on during the pandemic. So there's re-enlist and there's uh, kind of my personal favorite is remodel, which comes in two forms, you know, which is cosmetic remodeling and structural remodeling. You know, if you're just moving the furniture around or changing which paintings are on the wall as a remodeling act or change the paint, that's pretty easy. If you're going to knock the wall out between the kitchen and the living room, that's a little bigger move. Um, but there are ways to do that within the job description. Um, the overwhelming majority of that focuses on, first of all, two things to focus on is number one is the how, not the what. People, you know, will often say, like I say, I wish, you know, I'm an analyst and I wish I got to spend more time with people. And I really want to do more people things. I really should be moving into, you know, I should be getting into coaching or I should be going into HR organization. I should be doing OD kind of things because the easiest thing to think about in work is that what I want should be in the centerpiece of my scope of work and it should be what they're paying me for. Well, that's the what as opposed to the how. So we're going to talk about some examples. I mean, even literally a woman who works, you know, in an insurance call center, you know, and she's, you know, banging through calls all day long, but she's been there longer than most people. She's one of the best interviewers and in bringing new people in. And she realizes, gosh, you know, a lot of the people that I interview with come back during lunch and ask me questions about how to do stuff. I really enjoy that. What if I just came in a half hour early, a couple days a week, you know, to give people some coaching. So she bakes herself an inside coach you know, for free, she's doing it as a, as a night job, costs her an additional 30 minutes three times a week. Um, and what she does is she incredibly increases the performance of her colleagues. She feels way better about herself. Sometimes incredibly small moves in time can have huge impacts in psychic dividend. You know, so that's the kind of small remodeling that people can do. And you don't need permission for that. Um, then there's structural remodeling, adding whole functions. We give an example of a woman who had a big chunk of her job she really didn't like. It had to do with the administration. She was in engineering and the administration of reporting data and you know this kind of stuff and field feedback on utilization of patches and what have you. Uh, she hated all that production engineering side of it and found an organization in the company that actually did that kind of you know accountability administration report stuff uh, and found a way for them to be an outsourced you know, we like that kind of stuff. We do it better than you. We'll do more of it. And so she actually got another colleague that she could dump that thing on that they would be happy to take it. And they got it all figured out how it would work and even work better than before, before she actually did go to her boss and say, would you mind if, you know, we got that work done for free better and I did more stuff you haven't got time to get done. That's not a hard sell. Um, take some cleverness. So those are remodeling ideas. And then relocate is literally move into a different function in the company, but one where you don't need a new degree and reinvent would be like, I wasn't accounting, now I'm in marketing. I really don't know anything about branding or social media. I might have to go, you know, go to a hackathon or go to get an MBA at night, but I'm still doing it in the same industry and particularly in the same company where I've got a brand, I've got people I know, I've got a network. You know, and particularly right now, you know, because as the pandemic goes along, now's maybe not the time to jump ship. Um, so those are a quick run through of the four different approaches. And that can be listened to both at the individual level. What do I do with my job? And let's say you're managing an organization or you've got a bunch of people who are, and you know, they're feeling stuck. You know, they want to grow. The company maybe is, is not, some people, by the way, are exploding during the pandemic because it actually works for them. You know, I'm, I'm old. I have five adult children, four married. I've got nine grandkids, right? So I've got you know, nine young adults on my radar screen. Well, I got, you know, I got a team lead over at Netflix who's working his butt off. And I got, a, you know, a, a front office manager of a large hotel system where she and her entire staff are all been laid off for nine months. 
because the hotel business is in the tank. So where you where you are in the pandemic affects things deeply. But as a leader, how can you help people make the most of what they're doing while we all try to get through this thing together? So I'll stop there. We're not here to do a 25-minute presentation, but um, well, we're trying to get people to think really creatively, making small operational moves with big psychic dividends in order to get a much bigger outcome. You also talk about three different kinds of overwhelm that people face, and you talk about strategies to de-overwhelm. I didn't right. look at the, I didn't look into the, uh, the dictionary to see if that's actually a word, Dave. But, right. uh, but anyway, I want to. Can you talk a bit about what you've diagnosed there? Yeah, there's, um, and that actually, that chapter actually is the executive chapter. Um, when our agent was selling the book to the company. He actually was meeting with Marcus Dole. Marcus Dole is the CEO of Penguin Random House Worldwide, the global organization. You know, and Marcus says, well, here's my problem. <laughs> you, know, you know, I got myself, in, I love my job and it's killing me. You know, um, what do I do? You know, so we literally wrote a chapter for the global CEO of Penguin Random House. Um, you know, and there is, so three kinds of overwhelm. There's sort of the, the there's the regular overwhelm where you just got too much to do. Um, and so there, what you can do is, um, the idea is you really have to be able to delegate. And what you have to do is be smart enough to delegate the good stuff. You, you can't just delegate the junk because what you want to do is you want to empower other people, you know, and so you're finding things that are tasty and interesting and you're empowering them and that frees you up, right? Um, then there's what we would call Hydra because there's just all this stuff going on at the same time. Um, probably the most important one, uh, the, so happy overwhelm is where you've actually, you know, you've literally created your own mess, you know, and that's where, you know, what you can actually do is you actually can, you know, downsize your, your own thing. You, you've made it too good. You know, if you're Marcus Dole and you're overwhelmed, the truth is you absolutely can rewrite your job description, you know, um, and make it more manageable. Um, the one that you have to watch out for is, is sort of the mega overwhelm, which is the one where there's just nothing you can do. You know, uh, the example was actually when, you know, Bill and his wife, Cindy, had their first child. She had just started a company. Um, and so literally... You know, there was no negotiability. So they were, you know, she was taking the kid to work and putting it in a drawer. Um, and then a little later on, when they started another company, they had a little more time and money. What they did was Bill came home and they negotiated a new deal. He renegotiated the fact is the overwhelm that's overwhelming, the place that's causing it to be overwhelmed is work. And in the work situation, there's frankly nothing I can do. Because I built this thing. I am the critical path. I do have to do all this stuff and it is this big. And if I don't do all this work right now, we're going to miss the window. You know, and that usually goes on for a year or two or three, you know, Bill and I were in this and when we built the life design lab, you know, and we wrote this book and then stuff started to go crazy. I mean, we were truly drowning in it. And so I ended up renegotiating, you know, home life with my wife and said, so a new, we're going to have a new form of balance. You know, you're going to see me on airplanes when you take a trip with me and on the occasional weekend. So you literally renegotiate the deal. In Bill and Cindy's case, they, you know, they rented a wife. So Bill had two wives. You know, he had the one he was married to and the one that he rented, you know, to take care of some domestic stuff. So that he bought his way out of that problem, you know, and which was, and they could, you know, it wasn't um, economically efficient, but it was life efficient for a while. So they made a sacrificial decision. It was pretty expensive um, to live their way out of that thing. But which kind of overwhelming when you're in can determine which kind of solution you're getting. But what you don't want to do is let it turn into burnout. And in the chapter we've been talking about, that's a clinical definition. There's a, actually um, a medical definition of burnout. There's a, we put the Mayo Clinic uh, survey into the book so you can assess whether or not you're actually in that state. And if you are, 
that's actually diagnosable, which actually you actually need to get under care. Um, so overwhelm is normal, burnout is not. And what you want to do is not stay in overwhelm so long it becomes burnout, because then climbing out of that is a long, slow process. I've been through that twice. Um, mm. You don't want to go there. Dave, you talk about reframing one's job description and the psychological impacts it can have on employees. Uh, to what extent are the issues associated with this U.S.-centric versus universal? You know, on, uh, the honest answer is I don't think we know yet. The, on the first book, um, we have been astonished at how not cultural it is. Um, it is significantly different in Japan. We've got a, we got a business partner in Japan um, who actually is delivering corporate workshops and working with us and that kind of stuff. There are some things relative to how the, the face management issues, the level of confrontation, um, where how you go about using those tools really has to be culturally sensitized. However, from Thailand to Cambodia to Russia to Eastern Europe to Northern Europe to Australia, you know, to South America, um, we have been pretty astonished at how um, we're much more alike than different from one another. Now, on the work stuff, I think what's actually culturally more different is the kind of work environment I'm in. So I'm an entrepreneur. I'm one of 400,000 people working at IBM. You know, I run a small store. Um, those differences have to be taken into mind. Um, and I think they can be as big, if not bigger than, and I'm doing it in Estonia or I'm doing it in, you know, Bangkok, as opposed to I'm doing it in Cincinnati. Um, but right now, I would say the, um, the need varies. I mean, the, the disengagement levels in, in certain corporate categories in Japan is over 90%. There's actually a, 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 a Japanese term for it, which I can't properly pronounce, which, talk, which is defined as corporate slave. Um, so that's, you know, there are places where this problem is worse um, and where some people feel more constrained because they're, if you have a very autocratic or very hierarchical organizational process, then the whole idea, I need permission to do anything, um, requires a little bit more cleverness. So there are places where for the tools to work, you've got to be a little more clever. You've got to be a little a little more agile, which is why there's a whole chapter on politics, by the way, um, navigating organizational politics. Um, so we're trying to give people the tools that they can actually use to adapt it within their cultural milieu. Because most of where the cultural differences show up is frankly in how power is utilized and that's why we give you a chapter on politics. So if you're if you're in Japan, you really need to read the chapter on politics. I wanted to ask you a bit about one of the sections I found particularly interesting is the what appears to many to be a paradox between meaning and money. Yes. Uh, you talk about the, the you need to design more meaning into your work. It's not as though it's an either or. Um, talk a bit about your perspective there. Yeah, you know, this came up for us first in the first book on the question of work-life balance, and now it comes up in zooming in on work on the issue of money versus meaning. So there are a lot of issues that get presented as a dichotomy. And the problem with most dichotomies is not all, but most dichotomies are in fact false dichotomies. Well, do you want market share or profitability? Well, do you want customer satisfaction or efficiency? I mean, we ask questions in all these dichotomies and what your brain will immediately do when you ask a question set up as an either or is it'll make it a teeter-totter and turn it into a zero-sum game. So, you know, money goes up and meaning goes down or meaning goes up and money goes down. So you have to pick one. Well, we think those are really unhelpful because um, most of them simply aren't true. So the way we um, try to impact that dysfunctional belief is by saying what these questions are really about is what are you making? 
And so we conceived a maker mix, and, and we're into the maker movement because we're design guys, right? So, um, so we came up with the maker mix is you make three kinds of things. You make money, you make impact, you make expression. So, you know, in, in pretty much, you know, the, the capitalistic economy, the, the measure of what you make is in money. It might be you're producing units or service or what have you. But as an individual, you know, I'm making something that makes money. But I'm also making impact. So the, in the social impact world, you know, you measure according what's your change model and these things. What are your, what's your change impact? And what are your metrics for, for change and for impact? So how am I impacting the world in whatever way I think matters to me? And then my expression, you took people in the creative economy, people in, who are musicians, people who are in you know, graphic arts, they think, well, this is my opportunity to express myself and put an expression into the world. Now, all of us actually have all three of those forms going on at some level, maybe even very low. Um, at some point, I'm making money, I'm making some impact, and I'm making some expression. So what we talk about is rather than get stuck in the making, the, the money-making, meaning-making teeter-totter, which is a, a big issue for people thinking about, you know, second career, I'm 67, right? So I teach in the Distinguished Career Institute program at Stanford, which is the gap year for grownups, mostly 45, I mean, ranging 45 to 85, but mostly 57 to about 67, right? So I'm thinking about retiring. What do I do with my second, my, my final gig? Um, and the big question there is, you know, I'm going to move out of money and into meaning. Well, that, that's a real trivial way to think about it. So we say, Look, you're just shifting your portfolio mix to actually design what looks like a mixer board in a sound studio. You know, I mean, and you're not you don't have max treble, max bass, max reverb. I mean, a good mix is not max of everything. A good mix is the right sound for the right tune at the right time. So what we suggest is which of your money making, impact making and expression making do you want to change a little bit, a little more, a little less? And they don't have to move in lockstep. You can move one all by itself and the others don't have to shift. It's not a zero sum game, you know? Um, and for one of the examples was my wife. So my wife, um, who spent 35 years, you know, as a senior sales exec and ran a third of a billion dollars worth of business at the end of her career, was the first female IBM ever let sell a mainframe computer, you know, first girl they ever give the keys to. Um, she had left that and was now a homeless advocate. So her second career was all in homelessness. She was no longer making any money, could care less about that. That was my problem. You know, she was having a huge impact. Her impact was off the chart, but that was it. I mean, she was a full-time save the world person, enjoying the heck out of it, but felt a little flat and wanted to get back to some expression. So she wanted to move her expression now. But so we looked around, what could she do? She just took one little watercolor art class. Very, very small commitment. You know, changed everything. She felt like a completely different person because a part of her got an expression and you moved it a little bit. So we, that's a good example. In all of our exercises, we strongly encourage people to make very small experimental moves, prototype them, see whether or not you're getting something out of it. You know, don't say, okay, I should stop the homeless stuff. I really should be doing something entirely. I should start an interior decorator firm. You know, people tend to way overthink stuff and then they find they don't like it because they haven't really tried it out in lots of little ways. And you could even do that at the office. Are there ways she could do more expression-related things while she's actually in the homeless service center working with the staff? Um, so there are ways we're trying to get people to just think a little differently and not get stuck in these teeter-totters.
Dave, you alluded to the role that that uh, managers of teams can play uh, in helping employees, especially if they surmise that some and the percentage would certainly suggest that some of them perhaps feel are feeling overwhelmed and stuck and, and in need of redesign. And you talk about um, helping employees develop their own pathways. Uh, right. I wonder if you can sort of peel that back a little bit further, if you would. We think that's a rising tide. Um, and in fact, um, you know, we've been asked to come and speak into some professional development programs at some large organizations. So, you know, we worked for a couple of years now with AIG Insurance, right? Who, frankly, was the poster boy, you know, of the crash, um, and and the process of coming back now, having taken a whole bunch of the federal government's money and to reinvent the company, they're feeling some obligation to improve it. So, you know, we got the new leadership team at AIG, and we've been working with um, their professional development organization that has a two-year onboarding development program for all the new employees coming to AIG. It's huge. Um, and, and they've pivoted that whole program to, rather than welcome to the big AIG corporation that's going to take care of you, and you're going to, you know, we're going to, we're going to help you plan your career. We are not going to empower you to navigate your own career. So we are literally, look, you know, once this, and it's kind of weird because you're in this program that makes you feel like you're really being cared for. And the whole point of the program is to kick you out of the nest, able to fly. Um, and, and I'm part of that messaging. Um, and what they're really trying to say is you, you really have to be able to both, you know, discern what you want and start navigating through the organization to find ways that you can make contributions, expanding your job description where you are and navigating to new places along the way, you know, whether we have a short four step, you know, get curious, talk to people, try stuff and tell your story, which is that's the 300 page book in 10 words. Um, I'll come back to that in a minute. So that, that's a formula we use to keep it simple. Um, but the key thing about empowering employees is, number one, really helping them believe, and it depends a lot on the size of the company you're talking about, but do they really believe that their career is their job um, and it's their responsibility and their responsibility is to, add, to find out from you what help you can get them enabled with to go where they need to go. You don't take them places, you enable them to take them themselves places. So at the high level of career planning, that's the approach we encourage, which really works well. And that's where this experimentation process, this four-step process really comes into play. The other one is how to make things a little better where they are. You know, if it was right now in most places, it's not okay to be unhappy. Um, in fact, there's a great video series in the UK, which includes a module called Smile or Die. You know, that the world has become so biased toward optimism. You're not cheerful. There's something terribly wrong. It's not okay to be unhappy. So, you know, I'm doing a pretty good job, but I'm, I'm, I'm fairly disengaged. It is not safe to tell my team lead that. It's not safe to tell my boss that um, because I'm going to get in trouble. If you can make it safe for people to actually tell the truth about how work is going and that they thought you could be a collaborator with them to innovate how they can make their job better right where they are, um, and you can demonstrate that. In fact, I'd encourage people to go find an early adopter employee who's willing to take the risk of living out loud their disgruntlement and working it through in collaboration with their boss or their team lead and demonstrate that's actually okay here. You know, um, and that would be huge. And then further in our, in our second edition that's yet to be written or published, um, talking about where we go from here, one of the big shifts to this format of going to the Zoom thing is it's actually more personal than ever. We call it the human in the room. You know, we've gone from role to person. Interesting. And going from 3D to 2D, which is a flattening of what appears to be the people we're working with, 
we've actually become more human and more personal. And that puts a new burden on leaders. But I'll, st I'll stop with that as a teaser. No, that's great. How does this play out in today's environment? As companies have shifted towards remote work and there's a vision of the future that most believe will be a hybrid model, um, I imagine there are big questions on many managers' minds about how to keep employees engaged uh, when they don't have that office culture they once had. What insights can you share related to workplace culture? So when we decided to sign up for this, this new edition, we started calling a bunch of people. Um, you know, in all walks of life. I mean, from the COO of the University of California, 200,000 employees, you know, to moms and pops. And one, and, and a lot of management consultants who, you know, had a crow's nest view of a lot of things. Um, two, face-to-face -face conversation has never been more accessible. Uh, working your network and actually animating your community has never been easier. There's an egalitarianness. There's a, a land, a leveling. When we sit, when we meet like this, you know, the really noisy extroverts dominate a little less than they used to. The quiet introverts show up a little more than they used to. And, you know, when the screen is bright around them, they take the stage. So there's a bunch of things happening there dynamically. Um, and the reverse is also true. Cracking the network if you're not in it is harder than ever. So onboarding. Yeah. Onboarding has become extremely difficult. Um, existing networks are, are reanimated. Network penetration is harder than ever. Uh, so a lot of execs are thinking about, well, we do, boy, we're, you know, we're not going to, we're certainly not going to go back to everybody in the office again. It's way too expensive. We don't need to do it. Um, but we do know something happens when we get together in person. Exactly what the heck is that? And when does that deserve to happen? When do we need to go from URL to IRL, from, from online to in real life? Um, and that, that question is floating around in the air right now. People have not nailed it down. But what you were saying is exactly what we're observing. With increased remote work, a lot of business leaders feel they've lost their ground radar, so to speak, among their employees. There's been much written about the decrease in candid or even honest communications in virtual environments, and as much as communications tend to be a bit more formal. Uh, what are your observations? And I'm, you know, a big fan of MBWA. You know, having you know grown up around, you know, Bill and David Hill and Packard is where that started. Um, it was originally called uh, Next Bench, you know, because they were once upon a time a company of buying for engineers, and you have to know, hey, what's what's the problem with that guy on the on the bench next to yours? You know, you got to go hang out. Um, and when they had those the annual manager reviews, everybody was terrified of Dave Packard because he knew every engineer in the company. And the general manager of the division would get up and start reporting. And then Dave started asking him questions about stuff he doesn't know anything about because <laughs> he hasn't got the same network Dave does. But nonetheless, those links are, the links are in place, but the traffic is down. And the traffic is down, which says, so now we're doing this thing that's working. So I think people are still in the honeymoon of, wow, it's working better than we thought it would. So that's, that. the brightness of that is um, occluding the thing that's missing, it's the sin of omission, which is the inadvertent serendipities. You know, gee, what serendipities that you didn't plan on having this week didn't occur? Very hard data to get. Um, but I think it's absolutely true, which means if we're going to go forward to this culturally, then another question in addition to, and when do we really need to get together? Because by the way, we need to have those links have some traffic opportunity. Is there a way in an online format to have informal gatherings you know, because there isn't a hall, there isn't a cafeteria, there isn't a water cooler electronically. So can we create those environments? And that might have to do with, you might need a cover story. 
and the cover story might have to do with other, it's a professional drama, it's a lunch and learn. There's these other things going on where people are getting together for a reason enough to click the link, but it's not a get shit done conversation. So we're in this other mindset and while we're there like, oh, and hey, I mean, I heard Rev 2's banging into some stuff. What's going on with that? You know, or, or oh, let me talk to you offline later. You know, and so you, you find a way to sneak into it. But as a whole, you know, well learned that growing up, you know, just walking down the hall didn't get you an MBWA insight. Walking down the hall in a certain kind of a way did. So we now have to craft a whole new set of what that hallway looks like and how you walk down it. I think there's a, a big learning there. And one thing I want to point out on the human part, we're being more human. Um, one thing I'm strongly encouraging people to do is um, I think you can facilitate stuff that you don't manage. Um, you know, we've been in conversations with what you used to do, you know, supervision, and then we did personnel, and then we did human resources, and then we did talent management, you know, and then we do professional development. You know, what are we really doing here? You know, and we've been asking with some CHROs the question, is life design the next wave of what professional development deserves to be? Because people no longer want to have a job. They want to have a life with a job in it. So anytime you're talking to a person, particularly millennial and down, you're talking to somebody who wants a life, not just a career. Um, so you've got to expand the conversation. And that gets unnerving because like, well, wait a minute, that's none of my business. You know, I don't, I don't want to know about your marriage. I don't want to know about your meaning making value system. Um, okay. Except you can't, I would, I will propose that you can, as an organizational leader, recognize, oh, people want to live what I call coherently, where who they are, what they do, and their values are in alignment. Oh, we know from the research that workplace is a significant place where you would experience the expression of your value system. This pandemic with a reason that ETRA has renewed everybody's relationships, you know, um, that's great. Okay, we are good at organizational development. We're good at putting the tools in place to let you be effective workers. Tell you what we're going to do. We're going to put some tools in place. We're going to empower our leaders, you know, to actually work with you, you know, and use things like this make or mix thing for meaning making. We we call the compass exercise on your work view and your life view. Are you living coherently? How do you extract meaning? Do you know what is meaningful to you enough to know when you're even getting it? It's called name it and claim it. So there are tools you could put in place that penetrate into their human lives, you know, because you're having, you know, look, if there's a cat in the anchor's lap on the PBS NewsHour, and there was a couple of weeks ago, like the game has changed. You know, it's okay to see my cat. Um, it's okay to see my kids. Um, so we can talk to you about that. And we can even give you exercises you can do, exercises you can even discuss with your colleagues, maybe, maybe not discuss, certainly not turn in to your boss, because I don't need to know. I just need to know that you know, you know? <laughs> so you could facilitate them stepping up in meaning making, stepping up in values alignment without being in charge of it, because that's not your life. It's just like, we want to do our job of facilitating the stewardship of your role in this organization in a way that allows you to make it a meaningful life as best we possibly can. How can we serve you that way? And I still don't need to look at the paper. I don't need to look at your paper. I just want you to do the paper. And then I want you to talk together about that. I don't need to hear the conversation, but I need to know whether or not you, in the process you learn things that might want to be a feedback loop on how we run the company. So I think there is a way to get there that's not inappropriate. There's a way to get there that's not likely to you know, become litigious, um, but it's going to feel like new territory for most managers. And Dave, I want to thank you so much for for your very uh, you know ins your insights from across uh, your your book and your career. It's really been a great conversation. 
Well, thanks. So it's kind of fun to be, you know, frankly, with my colleagues. I, mean, I was one of you guys for, you know, 30 years. You know, it's, it's an <laughs> academic thing snuck up and bit me from behind. Um, well, you know, and, I, and I really regard the challenges you're all facing. So, um, so the best to you. Thank you so much, Dave.